historian, entrepreneur, and author Itai Tenenbaum is your guide for a behind-the-scenes tour of Israeli society and objective analysis of the key issues of the day for anyone who wants a deep and authentic look inside Israel. Welcome to the Inside Israel podcast. Recently, a groundbreaking story surfaced and went totally under the radar of most media sources. Researchers found out that water generated from the air in Tel Aviv complied with the drinking water standard set by the State of Israel and the World Health Organization. The research determined that despite heavy urbanization, the water extracted from the air in Tel Aviv was safe to drink. Yes, from the air. WaterGen is an Israeli company that produces systems that tap into atmospheric water using patent heat exchange technology. Basically, they produce water from the air. A couple years ago, pre-COVID, I was traveling in Vietnam. At one point in a remote village, our hiking guide showed us a large machine and said, look at this, it makes water from thin air. I smiled and proudly said, awesome. It is an Israeli company called WaterGen that invented these machines. This piqued my curiosity, and when I looked it up, I discovered that WaterGen donated the machines to Vietnam as well as to Brazil and India. Israel has been dubbed a high-tech superpower. It is also best known for the innovative research and development. But there's an intense discussion going on among Israeli economists and tech leaders asking, have we reached the summit? Will Israel innovative high-tech decline in the coming years? Okay, let's first talk about the greatness and then we'll question it. Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Intel are among more than 350 multinational companies that have opened up research and development facilities in Israel. Now, listen to what some of these execs of these companies had to say. Don Dodge, Google's developer partner advocate, said, My job at Google is to travel all over the world and talk to developers, startups, and investors. I've been to every corner of the earth, China, Japan, Australia, all of Europe, the Nordics, everywhere. There's no other country on earth that thinks the same way that we, Google, do, like Israel does. Israel truly is a startup nation. You think like us, you break things, you make things, you're creative. It is special. Another example is Roy Ramon, managing director at Intel, who said, the reason I started the startup program in Israel is because when you, a corporate, meet with a company in Israel, they come in and tell engineers that they're doing it all wrong. They push everything off the table. Now, these engineers have been doing this for years. They're world experts. And yet, the Israeli startup is bold enough to come to a mammoth like Intel and say, you're doing it all wrong. And then he goes on to say, this is one culture you can't get anywhere in the world. Let me back this up with some numbers in comparison to the United States. 10% of Israeli employees work in high tech. In the US, which is very high tech as well, only about 7% work in high tech industry. Now here's a big one. 43% of all Israeli exports are attributed to high tech. In the US, it is about 19%. Here's another big one. 25% of all taxes in Israel are paid by high tech workers. Another one, 15% of Israel's GDP is created in high tech companies. In the US, it's estimated to be around 10%. Why the success? Look, there are many reasons for success. For instance, there are government subsidies that are given to high tech. Incubators were started all over the country where startups are able to put forth their ideas and test them. Israel is also among the highest educated population in the world. We've had waves of talented immigrants with advanced knowledge of math, physics, and other sciences. But perhaps the most important are two stages in a young person's life that create a basis, a foundation towards technology and innovation. Those two stages, again, in a young person's life are 
high school, and the Israeli Defense Forces. To gain a better understanding, I invited two brothers who majored in high school in computer science, went on to the Israeli Defense Forces and served in a computer intelligence unit. They shall remain nameless since they still serve in the IDF intelligence in regular service and also in reserves. The brothers lived in the United States due to the fact that their parents worked in technology, hence their English is impeccable. Hello to the both of you. Hello. Hello. I want to uh, talk a little bit about high school first, and then we're going to talk about the Israeli Defense Forces a little bit. So the first question I want to ask you is, how was the quality of the computer science program that you majored in in high school? I would venture out to say that quality is good in respect to the subject, what they teach. They teach well, but they don't teach enough. But tell me also about the quality of the teachers. Did you, for instance, I know that there's a phenomenon in Israel of which people who had worked in high tech retired from it and went on to teach in high schools. Did you have an example of that in your school? Yeah, we had two teachers that did something like that, worked in high tech companies and then moved to become educators. I think both had similar stories where they worked long hours. You could say the high tech scene in Israel is pretty uh, grueling in that sense. And they wanted to be more involved parents, more at home. So they moved to teach near out their kids. Another question. There is majoring in computer science in high school. By the way, my youngest daughter is now majoring in it and my middle daughter majored in it. Neither of them, however, went on to the cyber program in high school. As I understand it, you did learn cyber. Tell us a little bit about what is taught there. The syllabus for the cyber program in Israel goes over a couple different subjects, mainly computer network, operating systems, you could say, and assembly programming language. And essentially, all of this is to build up to a final project where kids are then tested on that. The main topics and the main goal of that subject was to build an end product. I had friends that built Android apps, but usually like the ball was in our court. We could choose what we wanted to build. We both had a teacher for the cyber program in, in school that was the same teacher who really believed in kind of having kids figure thing, things out on their own. My final project had to do with IoT and uh, home automation. Mine was more focused on, uh, on antivirus. Okay, my last question about high school. Did you feel that the high school yeah. computer science gave you a foundation needed for serving in a computer unit in the Israeli Defense Forces? You could say that the curriculum uh, in Israel was one that kind of opens a door to what is possible to learn, to what is out there, but it's not what is needed to get accepted and to work in, in one of these units. But kids that don't otherwise have uh, the opportunity to kind of learn these things on their own can see what is out there and then expand on that knowledge and and kind of educate themselves and then reach the level that is required. Let's talk about a little bit about the Israeli Defense Forces. Uh, I realize you cannot expose anything that is that we're not supposed to know any secrets at all. So first, I want to say that the people I speak to outside of Israel that don't really know much about the Israeli army, they're convinced that army is very rough, very tough, very disciplined. Do you find this to be the case in the intelligence computer units? It's not how you'd imagine it. That's for sure. There are no like, necessarily strict guidelines on when you have to wake up, when you have to work, how to dress, how to look. There's no drill sergeant that wakes you up at 6 a.m. and makes you run laps. It is very different than what you would imagine. It is much less strict and much more open. There's a lot more trust between commanders and between individuals within these units. I would answer your question with a yes and no. There is some level of strictness and there is some level of a lot of freedom. All of these cyber intelligence forces that the kids draft into start off very strict. You're in a class studying 6, 7 a.m. to 11, 12 at night. How comfortable do you personally feel or how acceptable is it to second guess your commander to say, wait a minute, maybe you're wrong. Let's do it my way or another way. There are a lot of places where I've run into personally where there were certain decisions that were made where I didn't agree to them at all for various reasons. 
And because I, I made my voice heard and I stated why, and my commanders listened to me and we talked about it and we talked about it for like over and over again, eventually, you know, my, what, what I had to say was heard and was even changed the outfit that was meant to be. So is it so, right to say that creativity is allowed within these units? It's even encouraged. Yeah, encouraged, I would say. Yeah. I was a commander in my service. And, and so in, in the programs that teach you how to be a commander, they're very different from programs that my friends or, or in different units like, go through. They really state out and encourage you to explain thoroughly and discuss thoroughly with soldiers that you command kind of your way of thinking and why you chose to make a specific decision. And if they agree, you really, really encourage this kind of discussion and soldiers feel really comfortable to then voice their opinion. Do you think that the serving in the IDF in the computer unit gives you a clear competitive edge into employment at a high-tech company in Israel? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That was a pretty clear answer. <laughs> I, I, can, I can elaborate. A lot of my friends are, uh, are, are relieved now. It's such an advantage. Even before you finish your service, we just talked about a recruiter that uh, talked to them on LinkedIn. It happens multiple times a week. Sounds like a win-win. Well, last question. Do you think that the IDF computer intelligence units are very much on top of things? In other words, I'm not asking for any secrets, but are they very much on top of the issues that need to be handled? Can we Israelis sleep well at night? They do now. (laughs) (laughs) I personally think yes. As I've seen firsthand, I've seen that that there have been a lot of things that have been solved that could have led to disasters. I personally think that people are doing the right thing and the right things are being handled. I'd answer that. These units operate in a sense where they have a set of responsibilities, delegate them very thoroughly and make sure that, that every aspect is being handled and maintained by specific teams. And yeah, there are things that happen that are that you would say are, are sometimes uh, impossible and kind of uh, miraculous, but I, I'm, I'm happy to say that more often than not, they don't. And essentially the things that happen are to us within the unit kind of obvious. And this is this feeling is what makes my answer so hard set on the fact that I think that Israelis should, should sleep well at night is that when, when we succeed, we're not surprised. And it's often, and, and we're very much on top of things, and, and the, the technical level and the operational level of these units is at, is, is, is at the highest level. Um, it's incredible what, what the things that, that have been done and are being done. Uh, and will be done. Okay, so I know I said last question before, but now I have a final question. My youngest daughter will be going to the army in about a year from now. Would you recommend for her and her friends, and I guess I'm asking a general question, to use their skills in computer science and join one of these computer units? I don't know if this is known to like the listeners, but in Israel, being a pilot is like considered a very elite, very glamorous uh, role. I was accepted to flight school in, in, uh, in the Air Force. And, and I turned it down in order to join one of these technical units. The pattern is becoming more and more often. I mean, it goes to show that uh, these technical units are becoming the new elite and most glamorous uh, positions that you can, you can do. So obviously, I believe that anyone that is accepted should go. Well, boys, keep up the good work. I think anyone listening to this episode will sleep well tonight. And good luck on all your endeavors in the near and in the far future. Thank you. Thank you very Thank much. You. While there's no doubt that graduates of technology units have an advantage in the tech force, especially graduates of the infamous 8200 unit, there are still quite a few companies in Israel that are looking to recruit those that serve in combat units. The unique character of the fighters, their ability to deal with difficulties and a changing reality, their shared values as brothers in arms, makes them attractive employees. There are CEOs that claim technology is something you can teach an employee. In contrast, the values of which veterans of combat units comprise is something that is difficult to instill in someone who has not fought on the battlefield. As of now, one-third of high-tech workers are actually graduates of combat units, whereas only 11% are from the computer units. So we drew a pretty positive picture 
And in a couple of minutes, we're going to be asking some tough questions. More on the high-tech civil level, asking the question, is this as good as it gets? In other words, has Israel reached its peak as an innovative startup nation? Big question mark. But before that, I'd like to raise an important issue. High tech is almost always viewed positively, celebrating human advancement and improving health, safety, ecology, etc., etc. But lately, Israeli technology abilities raised serious issues and dilemmas dealing with civil rights, privacy, morals, and basic values of democracy and freedom. So in late July 2021, the president of France, Emmanuel Macron, phoned Israel's prime minister, Naftali Bennett. Now, I wasn't privy to the conversation, but strong rumor has it that Macron was pretty angry. He demanded an inquiry into the Israeli NSO software company. The reason was because his cell phone was on a list of to be monitored, probably by the government of Morocco. NSO is an Israeli company that creates technology helping government agencies to prevent and investigate terrorism and serious crime. Basically, they create spy software that fights terror and heinous crimes. One of their software products is called Pegasus. It is designed to break into phones, cell phones, and other electronics so as to be able to gain information and thwart terror attacks and, once again, serious crimes. NSO can't sell to just whoever they want. The Israeli Ministry of Defense approves sales only to government and only under the condition that the software is used to prevent terrorism or serious crime. All this is ratified with a signed contract. But how do you monitor this? How do you make sure that they don't breach the contract? It's almost impossible. Countries like Morocco, Saudi Arabia, Hungary, Mexico, and many more use the Pegasus software to spy on journalists, human rights activists, and opposition members. They weren't the only ones. Up to 50 countries use the software to spy on people that are not really a security threat or criminals, or at least according to our democratic Western definition of what a threat is or who a criminal is. Take Saudi Arabia. They have a whole different definition of a threat to their national security. For the Saudis, a terrorist could be anyone that opposes the government, like, say, journalists that criticize the government. Remember the Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi, who was killed and then dismembered by agents in the Saudi embassy in Turkey? Apparently, the Saudis tracked the phone of his fiance using the Pegasus software. The software is also used to prevent serious heinous crimes, like murder. But again, adultery is considered a serious heinous crime in Saudi Arabia, and is punishable by death, actually stoning the death. So, one can say, okay, don't sell to Saudi Arabia. But Saudi and Israel have common interest to prevent terrorism by Iran or by jihadists or by others. We have a common interest to save innocent lives. But at what price? It is very important to state that the Israeli NSO company has canceled contracts with countries that they discovered were abusing their software. Furthermore, no one can claim that NSO knew that their software was being abused in such a way like by Saudi Arabia. We can also say with utmost confidence that the NSO Pegasus software has saved multiple thousands of lives from terrorists and heinous crimes. Now, I for one certainly do not have a solidified opinion of what is more important. My family and nation's physical security and hence the understanding that our privacy may be infringed upon or an adamant approach towards freedom and our right to privacy at all costs. I guess, as in many other issues in life, the answer is somewhere in the middle. Just for a couple of minutes, let's return to a statement I made earlier this episode. There is a passionate discussion going on in Israel asking, has Israel reached its peak as an innovative startup nation? In the last five years, the numbers of new startups being established in Israel has decreased from approximately 1,400 
that was around 2014, to about 850 in 2019, that's a 40% decrease. It's also estimated that only 520 new startups were established in Israel during 2020. Now, the decrease could all be attributed to COVID-19, which was characterized by high unemployment rates across the Israeli economy. But maybe not. In addition to the decline in numbers of new startups, the number of funding rounds in seed stage startups, and for those of us that don't know what seed stage is, it's basically funding used to take startups from an idea to its first steps. The good news is that the number of round A investments in startup doubled in the last five years. Once again, for those of us that are not in the know-how, Round A is usually the second stage of funding that a company receives. Another issue challenging Israeli innovation is the question of, are we still hungry? What I mean is, are we still motivated to create? In the last few years, high-tech workers' salaries have been on the rise. The incentives for employees to continue working in senior position is greater than taking a risk and starting something brand new and maybe failing. In other words, starting a new startup. Israel's high-tech success at first and still now, is due to large numbers of new, growing, and developing startups. The question being asked by the Israeli economists, will there be enough startups sufficient to sustain Israel's current level of entrepreneurial and technological activity? What can be done to continue being the startup nation? The level of state funding for innovation in Israel is lower compared to other countries. It stands only at about a half a percent of the GDP. In the European Union and other countries, such as South Korea and the U.S., Government investments in innovation stands between six-tenths of 1% and 1% of the GDP. This trend must change if Israel is to maintain its position as a global leader in the field of innovation. The Israeli Innovation Authority launches programs to try to also deal with the challenge of maintaining our status. In October 2020, they established a program in conjunction with the Finance Ministry, the Capital Market, Insurance, and Saving Authority, and also the Israeli Security Authority. And the idea is to have institutions invest in Israeli high-tech companies, and in return, the government will guarantee to the investment portfolio of any institutional entity. In other words, they'll guarantee their money. Another idea being put forth into legislation is an amendment to an already existing investment law. The idea is that the private investors will be giving tax incentives to invest and startups. That is as long as they funnel their exit profits, if they invest in a company that succeeds, back into research and development companies. An additional proposal is to assist Israeli corporations interested in buying foreign companies. This would help obtain intellectual property, increase Israeli employment, and of course, it'll funnel income, taxes, to Israel. There are many more examples, but enough for now. So to conclude, I'd like to go back to WaterGen, you know, the company that makes water out of air in the hope that they will serve as a role model for the future Israeli innovation. WaterGen also developed a small-scale version for home and office use, and they named it Genie, which has the ability to produce up to 30 liters of potable water every day. This will reduce significant plastic use by eliminating the waste caused by drinking bottled water. The same Genie can also serve as an air purifier, circulating clean air throughout homes. While the technology is now focused on tackling the global water shortage, according to the company's website, it is perfect for villages, off-grid settlements, and factories. It is still the world's most energy-efficient atmospheric water production system, helping to save world drought, energy-efficient, ecologically friendly, while at the same time funneling funds to Israel via taxation. Sounds like a win-win. That is it for today. Thank you for listening. If you like the Inside Israel podcast, please share with others. You can access all of our episodes on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Also, please sign up on our website, 
InsideIsrael.fm. And of course, we will keep you updated via the website. 